they were practicing some, some different flights and the two planes collided. And um, one of the planes had its tail chopped off You are listening to the Stories Behind the Stars podcast, and I'm your host, Tatiana Fallon. This podcast is run by the organization Stories Behind the Stars. We have the goal of writing a story for every service American service member killed during World War II. That's over 420,000. We are accomplishing this goal through amazing volunteers who you will hear in this podcast as they research and write these stories. If you're at all interested in becoming a volunteer and researching and writing these stories, please check us out at storiesbehindthestars.org. Thank you so much for your time, and I hope you enjoy this amazing content that we're finding. This episode is a continuation of my interview with John Meyer, who's researching the 325 Fighter Group in North Africa and Italy. And do us a favor and subscribe. Do you have another story you want to share with us? Yes. Um... The other person is uh, Daniel McCabe. Uh, oh, just a second. Going back to my uncle a little bit, he was given his wings a few days after he turned 19, which meant he was one of the youngest Army pilots in World War II. So I know... Uh, uh, a few years later, when former pr- President Bush, when he got his Navy wings, and I think it was late 44 or early 45, he got his a few days before he turned 19, and he was one of the youngest na- na- Navy pilots. But he got his wings, I think, almost two years after my uncle did. So he got, uh, Bush was flying a more advanced plane and d- different things like that. And I probably also had better uh, training also, you know, and looking back at some of the records I, I found of my uncle, he spent most, most of his flight training, he was 18. Most of the other people in his flight class were 22, 21, a few 20 year olds, very few 19 year olds. I think he was the only 18 year old in his flight class. And also, um, n- another reason why I feel my uncle was an amazing person. He did something at an extremely young age that is very difficult to uh, do. Uh, but back to uh, uh, Daniel. Uh, he was born in July of 1921 in Brookline, Massachusetts, uh, which is a suburb of Boston. His draft card was dated February of 1942. Um, he was five foot six, 157 pounds, blue eyes, blonde, and brown hair. Uh, looks like he was drafted in August of 42. He had finished four years of 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 a, of of high school and was working as a elevator operator at that time. Well, he was assigned to the uh, 325th Fighter Group, the um, the 319 Squadron, and he was part of the ground uh, at, at, at the ground 
echelon, which is a lot of your support people, your uh, supply clerks, uh, radio operators, uh, cooks, different things like 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 that. Um, he was killed uh, March eleventh, nineteen forty four, when the group was in uh, was in 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 Italy. His hospital records said that he was shot in the neck. Now wasn't able to find a lot of detail, but the 319 Squadron did fly a mission that day. And a speculation that I have um, that he was helping to get the planes ready for, for that mission. And one of the guns on, on, on the plane, a round went off striking him. And he was a private for, 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 for first class uh, he's buried in the same cemetery that my uncle is buried in in Italy, the uh, the Sicily Rome cemetery, um, and also uh, in a fighter group. Most of the losses you will see are officers because he had to be a officer. Or uh, early in the war, we did have they started off as flying sergeants, then they became staff sergeant pilots, then they became flying officers, and then later they became full uh, full, uh, full officers. And also uh, one of the books I have was written by one of these uh, pilots and he went on to, I think it was like a 20 or 25 year career in the uh, Air Force. But Daniel, um, and I'll always want to re recognize everyone that I can. Um, unfortunately, a lot, a lot of the books that I have, they talk mostly about the pilots. Once in a while, I get a crew chief or two mentioned here or there, but you're, you know, very seldom are you going to hear anything. All the the mess sergeant or the guy, you know, the the uh, clerk in supply or anything, you're not going to hear a whole lot about them. So I wanted to make sure that, you know, do do uh, something for for everyone. Yeah, I, I love that you bring this up and you tell this story too, because I think some people are like, oh, let's just highlight the, you know, ace pilots and were, you know, these really heroic things. And and while they're inspiring, I think it's it's really important to highlight these you know, the petty officers or the, the cook or, or whatever, because um, they all played a role. And obviously his, him being willing to play the role he played ended up with serious consequences. And that should be, you know, definitely honored and recognized. And I had the opportunity to interview our neighbor. He has since passed, but um, growing up, he always carried like his, he carried his candy in his pockets, like all the time. We called him the candy man. But he was a, a World War II vet. And so like anytime you saw him at, at church or in the grocery store or whatever, like you you run up to him and shake his hand and he always got candy. But he was just like a really cool man. And I actually got the opportunity to interview him about his service in, in the war. And the first thing he said to me, to I was doing it with a class that I was teaching on the, on the war. And the first thing he said to me is like, oh, well, I, I was just alignment I just I just was in charge of you know setting up the electricity and I didn't really do anything in the war and it was it just really was 
shocked me because I was like, wait, you gave up your whole childhood. You moved all the way across like the country. I mean, the world, you, you witnessed the atrocities of the Holocaust. Like all these things happened to you and you were just alignment. Like, like, I don't think you could be, I mean, he, he survived four days of the battle of the bulge in a foxhole, you know, like, so, I mean, he wasn't just alignment. And I think it's important for us to know, it's like, yeah, these, you know, they might not have been in the air flying, but they played a role in it. And it, it should be recognized that that them playing that role had consequences, you know, that they probably didn't foresee, obviously, but it was part mm -hmm. of signing up for the for the job. So. Yeah, I, I remember uh, years ago, I was at a re reunion, there's maybe 20 years back or so. And I had a, a book about the, uh, the checker tales. And um, I was having all the veterans sign it. And I went up to this one gentleman, I asked him to sign, sign the book. And he's like, Oh, well, I was just this doing this job. I, 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 I wasn't a pilot or anything like that. You don't want, want me to sign your book. He said, yes, I do. Because if you didn't do your job, the pilots couldn't do theirs. And I did a little research about the, uh, the, the, uh, the staffing in a World War II fighter group. And for each plane to fly out, for each pilot to take that one airplane out, uh, depending on what period in the war or anything like that, you had 13 to 15 men on the ground left behind for that one pilot to fly that mission. And that's assuming every single plane of the group flew. So you have 72, I think it's between 72 and 75 planes in a group. For every single one of them go, you had 13 to 15 left behind. But if you only had half that number flying, you had 30 people for each plane left behind. Because you needed, you know, that person on, on the, in, in the chow hall, making sure that everyone needs. You need to make sure the maintenance is done and the guns are loaded and the bombs are armed and you get the proper orders and you know where the AA batteries are going to be and, you know, different things like that. So everybody needs to do their part for the mission to, to, to go and do what, what, what it need, needs to do. Yeah, that's one of the things I've said this before on different podcasts, but I think it's part of my favorite part about this project is just helping people realize that the that we could not have accomplished anything without the one, the one mm -hmm. individual, right, doing the one thing that they really probably didn't see as valuable or necessary, but it was mm -hmm. essential, you know, and um, I really like that that's the way that this project is highlighting World War II history, different mm -hmm. than, you know, lots of these other books. I mean, there are some books that obviously do do, do that, but um, I think it it speaks wonders that, you know, when this project is finished, we'll have highlighted, you know, 420 some odd thousand individuals, you know, that's, mm -hmm you know, really profound, especially in this day and age where people are like, you know, if I'm not Instagram famous or if I'm not like, you know, really famous this way, then like, does my, my life have meaning? And it's like, yes, it does. <laughs> like, and it's, and it's, you know, valuable. And that's what I love about this project. So thanks for sharing that story with us. Do you have another story you want to share with us? Sure. Uh, got, got one more here. Um, gentleman by the name of George Gingras. 
I hope I'm pronouncing that right. He was uh, born in 1920 in wa Washington State. Um, he joined the uh, Army Air Corps in 1938, so he, he had a bit, bit, bit of time there. Um, it showed that in the 1940 census that he was a telegraph operator with the Air, Air, Air Corps at the time. Uh, he had one, one year of college, um, but he did not qualify for flight training until 1940. And he did training in California and Texas and stuff. Um, and one of his first duty stations was the eighth, the eighth pursuit group uh, that was at Mitchell Field in New York. Um, and before the U.S. even got into the war, the 33rd was had their P-40 Warhawks, uh, a er, er, early version of the P-40, loaded onto the aircraft carrier Wasp, and they were taken to Iceland. And that way, it was a, uh, an agreement that the U.S. and the British had. The British had troops on uh, on Iceland, um, and we agreed that we would station our troops there so the, those British troops can go back and, def and defend England. So he flew his early P-40 off the Wasp, which is also famous because two times it took a load of of, um, of British Spitfires to Malta. The, the WAFs went to about, I believe it was about 500 miles from Malta and the British Spitfires flew, flew off to, to, uh, to, to, uh, to Malta. And so uh, Lieutenant G Gingras was uh, in Iceland for one year. Uh, in fact, he was credited for literally chasing away a German re reconnaissance plane from Iceland. Now, since the U.S. was not involved, they could not shoot at the German plane unless they shot first. But when the German plane saw U.S. fighters, it turned tail and ran. So they, they just sort of made sure that the plane kept kept going back, back east, uh, out of the way there. So when he finished his year's duty on Iceland, he came back, was in the Boston area, and he became um, one of the key leaders of the 318th Squadron of the 325th uh, fight, fight, Fighter Group. So since he already had uh, a year of time and stuff, he was uh, one of the flight, flight leaders. Um, and then later on, he became the squadron commander of the 319, or excuse me, the 318th Squadron. And he was only a lieutenant at the time, but he had shown very strong leadership and stuff, stuff like that. So um, a few months later in January 1943, when the 3, 325th flew off the Ranger, well, this was sort of old hat to him. He already flew a P-40 off the Wasp, so he flew um, over to North Africa. Um, let's see here. Tragically, uh, he was killed 
February 11th, 1943, about a month after they got to North Africa. Now, when the 323rd first got there, uh, the U.S., we did not take a green unit and throw them into combat right, 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 right away. They got some in-theater training. They got um, the 33rd Fighter Group, which... Um, landed in North Africa a few days after Operation Torch started, they were very heavy in combat uh, a little further east in, in, uh, in, in, uh, in Tunisia. Well, they had a couple of their good pilots come back and they did, did some training with the 325th and stuff. Uh, and also the 33rd being in heavy combat, they were losing some planes. So the 325th, were ordered to give a bunch of their planes to the 33rd to keep keep them going. Uh, but they the three, 325th still did a lot of uh, flight training. And tragically, Lieutenant G Gingras uh, was killed in February 1943. Him and his operating uh, officer, uh, L Lieutenant Bloomer, they were practicing some, some different flights and the two planes collided. And um, one of the planes had its tail chopped off. And unfortunately, that was uh, Lieutenant G G Gingrich's plane. And his, that plane just went straight down and crashed, and he, he was killed. Uh, the other pilot, uh, he was able to bail out and uh, uh, landed safe, safe, safely. Um, and Lieutenant Gingras was uh, originally buried in Casablanca. Um, and then after the war, um, his uh, body was, was brought home and he's uh, buried up in, in Washington State. And when, when he was uh, buried, they had a uh, a leaderless flight of five P-40s fly, flying over, and they gave him a full mi military honors when they buried him. You know, but it's, you know, you just read some of these stories of these young guys in their prime of life, you know, like uh, uh, George here, he was, uh, you know, even only being a, lieutenant he showed so much potential that they made him a commanding officer of a squadron which normally went to a captain or a major um you know and to have basically a training accident you know or a training flight go 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 bad and he he, he was killed and this was still a about two months before the three 325th moved into uh combat Wow. So that was like, he was, he was really early in the war effort then. I mean, obviously yes. if he was before even the war started, that's, that's really, you know. Yeah. Now for his time in, in, um, in Iceland, I don't know if that would have been considered just regular flight hours or those were quote unquote combat hours. Um, you know, so I'm not sure how his, you know, the Air Force would have uh, had the pilots, you know, put, put that in their, uh, in their, uh, in their flight, flight logs. So I know some of the books that I read, different pilots would say, oh, I had 
so many hours of combat time, uh, but I also did a few, you know, training hops or uh, my my uh, crew crew chief did, did a bunch of work to my plane, so I took it up just to make sure everything was working good. So those were non-combat uh, flying time. Did they have to have X amount of combat flying time? like just to like qualify for certain missions or was it, you know, once you have enough time in the air, then you, you qualify for combat missions. Um, my, my understanding is once you go through all the stateside training and to do some of the local training, once you go overseas was, uh, my uncle, uh, for understand, he went over, and he was in North Africa, I think, for about two months before he was assigned to the uh, the three twenty uh, fifth fighter group. So he, uh, there was a reconnaissance squadron, I believe it was, and all incoming pilots was assigned to them for a while. Um, and one document that I found said he was at this one base uh, as a a a. a, 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 a an unattached pilot. And then as the 317 squadron was being moved up into combat, um, you're allowed to have more people in, in the group. So if you have like your, your peacetime roster and your active combat roster. So once a fighter group moved into combat, they're allowed to get, I think it's like two or three more pilots and a few more other people. So when the so he was assigned to the 317 squadron as it moved in, into combat. And then he was with, with them for about a month and a half before he, he was killed. Um, and it's amazing, pilots based on the number of planes available, giving people time off, uh, sickness or whatever else, uh, generally, say if a unit flew 50 missions, most of the pilots probably only flew 25 to 30 missions each, even though that unit flew 50. But, you know, instead of all 25 planes flying, they might only have 20 planes flying. The others are having maintenance done or waiting parts or whatever it was, or the mission did not call for all, all, all the planes to, to uh, go. You know, so in the month and a half, I'm guessing my uncle probably flew 15, 20, maybe 25 missions with the uh, 3 uh, 25th before uh, he was lost. Uh, tragically, his flight log and stuff made it home after the war. But after my my uh, my grandparents passed away, all that stuff got got lost. So I, I don't have a lot of that stuff. Yeah, it's, it is kind of tragic because a lot of people would not know what they were looking at or maybe they did mm -hmm. and they didn't really think to that anyone wanted to, or I guess didn't have a way to preserve it other than a shoebox, you know, and, and <laughs> whereas, you know, now we can digital, digital format and put it in a database and have it forever. So, so mm -hmm. there is quite a bit of that. Um, I'm interrupting the podcast right now to make a plug for our Arlington project. We're in the middle of it right now. We're hoping to get these done by the 4th of July. And there's so many amazing stories here to be found. So if you are new to the 
to the project, please visit storiesbehindthestars.org and click the volunteer button. If you've already been a volunteer and you've just kind of gotten busy, consider giving a little bit more of your time and contacting us to get some names to start doing research for these Arlington stories. They're quite phenomenal and um, just be part of a really amazing national project. Um, and then also, if you're new to the podcast, please consider subscribing so that when we put out new episodes, you can be notified and you can listen to these really awesome stories as we're finding them. So I always like to ask the people who come on the podcast a couple of questions, but one of them is, do you feel like doing this research um, and being involved in in finding these stories and telling them has changed you at all or changed your perspective about the war? Ooh, that's a good one. Um, yes, uh, it seeing you know there there's a few stories that I've written where a family's only son goes to war and doesn't come back. It 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 drives home the the tragedy of war and you know and not only for the people who volunteer to go or get 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 drafted but the people around them the you know tragically you see what's going on in uh in the ukraine today and innocent civilians you know buildings that are clearly marked hospital, children, shelter are being targeted. Now, granted, back in World War II, we didn't, you know, we could aim at, at a spot and, you know, the old, you know, saying was, oh, the, the Norton bomb site, you can put a bomb in a pickle barrel. Well, if that pickle barrel is the size of a football field, you know, on a perfect day with no crosswind or anything, maybe you can get within 500 yards of that pickle of that football field there, you know, so, you know, it's, you know, that, and that, that's one of the things there, there's so many um, stories like that, you know, the a couple's only child or their only male child or their, their oldest child, you know, it's, you know, and I remember talking with my, grandmother years ago and when she was talking about her son Ray um, and this was a good 35 years after he was killed you could still hear the hurt and the pain in her voice you know so that's you know and Oh, sorry about that. Um, I know one of the reasons myself and a few other f family members figure or feel that our my grandmother never brought Ray's body home. She had five sons. Tragically, only two of them made it to their 20th birthday. Uh, she had a son that died during the 1919 flu epidemic. He was only about a year and a half old at the time. And then in the mid-30s, another son, the summer between junior high and high school, 
one of the stories I heard, there was a swimming hole close by, and they had a, 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 a Tarzan rope out there. And the Tarzan rope broke. And with the accident, uh, my grandmother said he died of a broken heart. So I don't know if he broke a rib and it punctured his heart, something like, like that. And several years ago, I was back east. I was doing some family uh, history and stuff. And I was trying to find his grave. And I found out that my grandparents were never able to put a marker on his grave. And initially I thought, oh, how terrible. How can you do that to your child? Then I realized mid-1930s, you're in the depths of the depression. What a terrible situation for a parent to be in. Do I put a marker on my dead child's grave or do I buy food for my living children? And also I went and, and had a small marker placed on, on, on on his grave years ago and my dad and I, I very jokingly and lovingly call my dad the cheap Polak because he said why are you wasting your money on something like that and I just looked at my dad and smiled and he said your brother deserved a marked grave you know so and Unfortunately, my, my one uncle, who was very young when he died, there are no government records of his death. I did find some church records, uh, so I know the exact date and stuff. Unfortunately, when the priest was reading the book, when he got to the area where it mentioned what happened to, to the body, all of a sudden the priest got a little funny and said, oh, I'm sorry, the, the, the handwriting is too bad. I can't make it out. I wish I would have pressed at that time a little bit, you know, and said something like, you know, I don't care what happened. I'm not judging anyone or criticizing anyone. I just want to know what happened to my uncle. And I realize, you know, with everything that's going on, you know, some extraordinary thing could have happened, you know, could have been buried in a mass grave being a East Coast seaport. Uh, were all these bodies taken out to sea and buried at sea? Was there a mass cremation? I don't care. I just want to know. And unfortunately, the church that had those records, I found out recently closed. So next time I go out east, it'd be a little more difficult for me to find who has those records to try to get and look at those records again and try to get those those uh, those details. And, uh, wow. It's it's kind of like you're on a journey to put the pieces of the past together to just kind of close some bookends that just need to be closed as, for the family, you know, and that's really amazing. I kind of feel like maybe part of this work, even though it's so much later after the war, is trying to go back and, and just heal some of the, the damage that was was done by the war generational later, you know, honestly, you know, my, my great grandfather, whose son was killed in World War II, he lived with us for the last four months of his life. And he died in our home. And I, um, I have very good memories. I was only like seven, <laughs> really little, but I just have wonderful memories of him. He was, he was a special 
he loved little kids. Not very many old men love little kids, but he really loved us and he loved playing with us. But um, one of my favorite things that he would do every night was just as we were getting ready for bed and, and he'd take us down to his room and, and he'd had a, he had a picture of my uncle that was killed in World War II and, and he would talk about him. I don't remember a lot of things he would say about him because obviously it was seven, but mm-hmm. I think it's, it's just, you know, it's that generation that lost their children they think they have a hard time, you know, they, you know, it's, it's a grief that is hard to mourn because, you know, they die so far away from where you are. He was killed in the Philippines, you know, obviously your uncle was killed in Italy, but Mm -hmm. it's so far away and so remote and so distant. And then they come back in a box and then you put them in the ground or they don't come back at all, you know? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think it's, it's, it's hard for, for them to process that and so i think it's a beautiful thing for us is their posterity to be like well you know i can do this you know work for our family because i mean it's it's i didn't know him but i would have liked to have him honored you know so i think that's really amazing work that you're doing and with the time that you have to do it (laughs) yeah it's and and i i enjoy you know the 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 research sometimes connecting all the dots is a little tough but i enjoy research and finding things and and the people of the the uh, the three uh, the 325th because this is the you know everyone that i'm researching either flew with my uncle or flew with or served with one of the fabulous veterans of this unit that i got 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 to know over the last 20, 20 25 years or so so that gives it a little more special meaning for, for me, you know, it, it is, I read a few, few things once in a while, someone would say, oh, you know, I can put one of these together in an hour, hour and a half or something. And there's times I'm spending two or three days putting things together. Um, I just did, did one of a gentleman who was with the, um, the Illinois National Guard before the war started and then right after Pearl Harbor was attacked, he qualified for for uh, for uh, for for flight training. I've sent so many messages to the Illinois Veterans Commission, Cook County, uh, Illinois, the Illinois National Guard. You know, different people looking for information about his guard type. You know, and I even said, even if I just get his his original service number, that in itself opens up a lot of different things there. There's a a lot of things uh, 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 connected to that number. And when you become, most of the time, when you become a pilot, you become become an officer, so you get a different service number. So to learn the history before they got their wings, you need to know that other number so you can go back and look for things there you know and i always always feel bad when i cannot find a photograph of the person that i'm writing about you know to me that's it's nice to put a face to that 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 person oh yeah that's I, I think though I'm optimistic though that as we get this project going and it becomes more well known in the world that um, people will just start coming out of the woodworks and be like oh yeah you know I, I think I had an uncle or 
you know, or cousin or something. Maybe, maybe we have something in a photo album somewhere. You know, I, mm-hmm. I feel like the more that we get out there and get more publicity and, and get more stories told that we're going to start finding more and more people who have that picture or have that story. And then, you know, putting it in the databases that we're putting it in, they'll be able to to join in and, and it'll become more and more complete, which I think is the exciting part about, about this project. And so my last question I want to ask you is, do you have any advice for someone who's thinking about maybe volunteering? What would you say to them? If you love history and like a a challenge, because if you just have a name and you're doing a search, you know, you have to sort of guess, okay, when was this person born and different things like like that. Um, So if you enjoy history, like a challenge, want to uh, do to me, a very rewarding type of work. Um, definitely, you know, get do do this. Look look into it. Um, I have a buddy of mine that retired a few years back. He was a a Marine, and he retired a few years before I did. So he served in the late seventies when I served in, in the eighties. And I'm trying to get him involved. And I said. You know, does your unit that you served with, do they have history during World War II? Does that lineage go back? You could, you know, search for your former unit, you know, different things like that. Um, Or do things from your hometown, you know, you could just randomly pick somebody or you say, well, hey, there's that war, war memorial at the county square and it has you know, 10, 15, 20 names, whatever it is. And it's, well, well, I have the same name that this person. Well, that might be a distant, uh, a distant relative. And, you know, it's, like I said, it's, to me, it's a rewarding mission for, for me. Um, and the, the, uh, the, the story that I'm writing for those that are still overseas, I'm sharing those with the Battle Monument uh, uh, Commission overseas. So they have it because they want to know about the people that are in their cemeteries. So if they can have a few photographs, a little write-up says, oh, well, this is where the person's from and this is about his parents and siblings and where they went to school at. Um, And also it's great that we're doing it for our own project and, you know, and, and eventually that smartphone app will come out where you just scan the name on a, on a marker and the story will pop up. But if you can also share it with other places, you know, so that there's more people have the opportunity to see what, what we're writing about, you know, that, that I think will, is, is very good. Oh yeah, definitely agree with you. <clears throat> we are trying to be as collaborative as we possibly can and and just, you know, share with as with get all of the people in this industry talking together and sharing and it's been a little bit of a battle, but <laughs> I think the more that we're just willing to be open and sharing and and cooperative, I think we'll start getting more doors open and people will start being more willing to 
cooperate and share. So I really appreciate you taking the time though with us today to go over this and um, this Thank awesome you. project that you're working on. And, and it's really awesome to get to know you. And I learned so much. It was, I am not like an expert on World War II, definitely a novice. So every time I get to do a podcast, I really enjoy learning all these facets of the war that I had no idea about. <laughs> so I really appreciate you taking your time with us today. Right. Well, thank, 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 thank you. Uh, it, 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 it's a uh, great, I, uh, like I said, I, I, I enjoy doing this. I've given, it's a, a mission that I'm willingly, you know, take, taking on to, you know, share, share, share the story of our checker tail brothers out there. <laughs>